0: Former U.S. national rugby team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full Contact CEO with Alex Maggleby. Hey,
1: everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Maggleby. Muscle co founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Thanks to the Free Jacks, We have a Full Contact CEO discount on shop.freejacks.com for amazing tough comfort gear of all sorts. Use Full Contact CEO as a discount code to get a 15% discount. Be well. Let's ride. Full Contact CEO joining me today is former NBA player, longtime professional basketball player, playing everywhere from Europe to South America to the United States, a career most importantly dedicated to advocating for athlete rights. Ivy League graduate, it'll Big Green, and overall, just tremendous human, Walter Palmer. Walter, thanks for joining me today. I'm Full Contact CEO.
0: Thanks, Alex. It's really a pleasure pleasure to be out with you.
1: Yeah, it's great to see you again. We're just going to start with a quick word game. I'm just going to name a word or a couple of words and just say the first thing that comes to mind, just to, just to warm up a bit. Uh, Block shots.
0: <laughs> Harvard. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Is that still the record? What, was it 11 or 12 block shots in one game?
0: Yeah, that was, um, you know, the, it was 12 block shots and I, it was a game, um, the first game actually, or the, uh, the opening game for lead arena, you know, back, back in 88. And I just, I still, to this day, don't understand why those Harvard players just kept kind of driving to the basket and throwing it up so beautifully to be blocked. I still don't understand, but, um, um, yeah, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of that.
1: Running at the tallest player on the court <laughs> block yep. that. That's awesome. Uh, family. Uh,
0: my wife Sandra, um, who's, an, who's also a Dartmouth 91 and uh, you know who uh, we've been together since college. and she's definitely uh, you know the, uh, the core of our family
1: same broke as a 2001 a year younger mm-hmm. and she uh, absolutely she's the coach's coach <laughs> she's the advisor of advisors okay. uh, the future
0: who knows um you know i i think one thing that i've learned um over the course of my career and i think this is something that all athletes learn is that um, to, to live in the moment and also to so many changes happen so quickly. And, um, I, I'm, I just move along and try to go with the flow with things, you know, back when I was playing, um, you know, you could get a call and have to be somewhere in 48 hours. And, you know, I sort of adapted to that uh, in my life. And so I kind of let things come and I just have no idea what the future is going to bring. And I think the world has seen that too, with this pandemic, You know, what is the future going to be like? I think it's all very uncertain for all of us.
1: So, sort of plan and be in a position where you you can adjust, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have the opportunity to adjust to what comes at you in the future. Sure. Yeah. We don't, not not all of us always have that that opportunity to be able to adjust. It's a really great way to look at the future, to live in the present. Special shout out to one of our premier partners, Felskun. The official Chucka of the New England Free Jacks. Make sure you swing by the Free Jacks online shop www.freejacks.com. Go to shop to pick up your pair of custom branded Free Jacks Chuckas today. So you grew up. So you said your dad was was finishing up some um, school work, grad work in Ithaca. So you're your morning, upstate New York, and then you ended up you played basketball in Virginia in high school.
0: So I went to high school at Washington Lee high school, which is now Washington Liberty high school. And, um, my father, he was, he was a professor at Bowdoin college. And then we, he got a job with the state department and we moved down to Arlington, Virginia. And so when I was in fourth grade, third, fourth grade, and so that was uh, in Virginia through high school. And, um, I always considered myself to be from Maine, uh, even though I spent most of my childhood, I guess, in Virginia, um, and but I had a I had a really good experience um at, at Washington Lee and um was very you know the basketball kind of came later for me um than for I think most but um but I had a good experience there.
1: So growing up did you play a lot of other sports? You were just not into not into sports? I wasn't was
0: I was a late bloomer, you know, and I think that uh my I had my mother was somebody who was into the arts and my father obviously was an academic and he had also been an athlete, you know, an athlete in college, but we weren't pushed into sports. You know, we did all the typical thing, you know, we played uh, soccer, you know, uh, youth league soccer, played some youth league basketball, but actually I wasn't a very, uh, as I said, I was a late developer as an athlete and uh, just my phys- also physically was a late developer. And I, you know, I think actually that's frankly a, a huge issue in youth sports, Generally, is that when you're sort of categorized by age, um, sometimes uh, folks who develop later are, are disadvantaged. And um, I think I experienced that. But it was actually, it was fine because I found a lot of outlets and other activities that I really enjoyed and came to, came to sports very late. But
1: the thing you just hit on is the, is the opportunity to enter sport late is a very pertinent as we develop rugby in this country. You know, the traditional model in the United States is very much scholastic-based. You know, take football. At 17, 18 years old, you either have, at that moment in time, uh, and everybody's in totally different development spectrums, you either are physically prepared to play college football or you're not, and that's kind of when you get, you know, cut loose from the sport. And then the same thing happens again at 22, 23, to head into the pros. uh, Where, you know, rugby... For us, I think if we look at this, we have to have more entry points. It can't just be you're an elite all star player at 18, and therefore you have, you're you the ones who get anointed to change you know, the dream of playing for the national team and becoming a professional. But the reality is, you know, maybe two to five more years for you to physically develop into a position where you can uh, be competitive with people who already had that um, development. I think that's as we're building this whole thing out and it's growing so fast just making sure we learn that lesson
0: uh, early on. I think that's really smart, Alex, actually, because, you know, if you, we ha- we have a system in the United States that I think is very uh, kind of restrictive um, in some ways and that it, it sort of only offers one path and there aren't lots of options. You know, I mean, for basketball players, we reach our peak when you're 27, 28 years old. And so, it's, I just look at the situations like in high school where people are thinking like, Oh, this kid, this person, you know, this player can't do this or can't do that. They are still in high school. You're still 10 years away from your physical peak and your actual, um, you know, your skill, the, the being able to develop the skills that you need to really play the game. And our system just doesn't cater to that. And so this, this weeding out that happens, you know, in high school, then in college and, and our, you know, I, I, I don't think that necessarily the European system, there are also weaknesses and disadvantages there, but I know, you know, when you think about the pyramidal uh, way that sport is organized in the rest of the world, there are opportunities to continue to play in club sports that we don't necessarily have in some of the main sports here in the United States. Um, And so, you know, there's probably some really good lessons to be learned from, from other systems that, that I would expect rugby is able to do because it's sort of a globally connected uh, sport in the way that maybe American football or some of the other sports, or baseball, for example, are not as globally connected. Well said.
1: That Commonwealth model, there are certainly some, some lessons there. Yeah. And this classic model here in the United States is, is very pertinent to making, helping sport become part of the educational process of, you know, students as they develop, which is great. But losing that then, like, this this very binary choice that you either are at that moment in time at eighteen or not, and then that kind of the game disappears from you. Hopefully, with rugby, we can continue to provide avenues for people to continue to play, and then re-enter kind of more at the elite level as as they as they as they develop further. And it's so hard in our sport, especially because it's such a physical game, to pick a needle out of the haystack. Eighteen year old, whether it's a a girl or a boy and say that at 24 25 that person is going to be able to compete at the international test level there's so much that goes into being able to compete at that level the physicality of it the, the mental fortitude it, you know it's, that's a really really tough thing so let's expand the, the funnel as much as we can and keep as many people as we possibly can in the funnel and not do you know selection let's limit that until we get to an age where they're more physically
0: developed in totality you raise another really good point Alex, is that the, this combination of education and edu- social sport, educational sport with elite sport. And I think that we conflate the two and that there's a lot of, you know, advantages and disadvantages to our system. But I would actually argue that probably many of the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. Um, you know, it's very um, uh, it's very hard, I think, in an educational setting to truly understand what's the 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 stresses the the motivations the things behind elite sport and um and there's a there's a difference you know there's a there's a distinct difference I think between between what we would want from sort of broad based grassroots sport sort of keeping people active you know wanting them to be active throughout their whole lives and then what happens when you become that elite athlete where it's really not about health it's about performance there's a commercial aspect there's certain things about elite sport that I think just are not very compatible with uh, an educational system or the educational aspects that we want in in broad-based sport. And I don't think the, in the United States we do a very good job of reconciling those two. Um, so you know, there's some advantages for an athlete if you're if you're you know uh, having it in school. It's more convenient. There's some re- some public resources that are put towards that. Same thing in college. You sort of have a professional um environment in terms of facilities and coaching but the things that are for an athlete i think important um or some of the dynamics that i just mentioned around performance and the pressure to win and all those things aren't necessarily compatible with an educational setting
1: yeah, very well said and hopefully we can kind of dig in that to a bit around
0: yeah sure environments for
1: athletes you know, you know the, the latest the college athlete bill of rights all, all those pieces and how um what are some potential models you know, that we can all learn from? So you went from, so you in Virginia, Weston and Lee, you were also in the drama club. <laughs> well,
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, I mean, I was, uh, I was cut from my eighth grade basketball team and, uh, and so it's not the same, you know, the same comparison, I guess there's limited comparison there, but, but I was cut from my eighth grade team. And, and what happened then was that I was, um, I tried out for a part, uh, in Julius Caesar, which was playing at our, at our junior high. And I got the part of Cassius, which was a pretty big part. And I had so much fun, uh, with my, you know, made some really good friends and I did not miss basketball at all. And so when I got to high school in ninth grade, um, I tried out for the fall play and was the only freshman to make the play that year. I was a little bit taller and I think, you know, physically uh, you know, fit in with some of the older kids. And it was really a big deal. It was very exciting to be in the fall production in our, in our high school, pretty big high school. And so I was and I was delighted because that meant that I did not have to go through the humiliation of trying out for basketball again. And, um, and so I had something that I could say to people. And so what happened in gym class one day, the the freshman coach came up to me and said, Hey, you know, son, are you going to try out for basketball? And I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm in the fall play. And I think he took one look at me. I was about six, three, I had size 15. And he said, Hey son, just, when the play's over, just come to practice. <laughs> and so, uh, so I did. And it, it took me a week to kind of fit in with the kids, uh, with the player, the other players on the team who had gone through the tryout practice, uh, you know, tryout process. But um, but pretty soon they accepted me. And I kind of I was very fortunate to have a very caring and understanding coach. Uh, actually coaching in high school, my freshman coach, my JV coach, uh, the varsity coach was a uh, um, just a wonderful guy. And they allowed a lot of flexibility. Um, you know, I think that that's something that that um, is is a, a bit of a problem it can be a bit of a problem today. you know we want to develop discipline in sports, but I know for me the key thing for me being involved in sports at that time was the flexibility that was afforded to me to be able to do some of these other things that were really important and also continue to play basketball so
1: it sounds like you had some great mentorship and a good coach there so in high school i you know my, my oldest but I was young this of three boys. He did, you know, he was water polo swimming, plus he was also in Madrigals, he had a great voice, and he, he was in the school plays. And some of the plays they did back then, I don't think you could do anymore, like seven Rides for Seven Brothers, which is probably yeah. the <laughs> plays that are out there. So when I was a senior, I was, you know, trying to do everything and having a great time. I was, the, you know, I was trying to chase being valedictorian and you know, captain of football. I'm playing rugby, student body president. They're going to have a school play. So I showed up for the tryouts. And, and the, the person in charge pulled me aside and said, are, are you serious about this? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm totally serious. So she took me aside so I wouldn't get embarrassed and had me um, sing a song. And she's like, oh, son. <laughs> 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 10 years ago. So yeah, I didn't even have a voice for you. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. How did you get from then?" Washington Lee High School in Virginia, back up to uh, the Great Woods of uh, New England. Well,
0: yeah. So I, so, you know, I grew a lot in high school, and I was I was six eleven as a, as a senior, and had a pretty good, you know, a pretty good senior season. A couple a couple really good games. Um, and it was uh, my mother passed away during my senior year, which is also a pretty uh, impactful, you know, personal event. Obviously, and uh, the remember yeah. of my senior year. And so, you know, I, I was being recruited by some different schools. Um, I was a good student and um, you know, some pretty big schools were recruiting me and I had some, some, some options, but, you know, as you had noted earlier, my father had gone to Dartmouth. I had some other family that had been at Dartmouth and I, and I, and I wanted to continue, I thought I'd be able to continue some of these other activities. So I kind of focused initially on the Ivy league. Um, You know, I remember, I have a, a sort of a story, a recruiting story. You know, I went and I visited Harvard, and um, there was a coaching transition that was happening at the time. Uh, the coach who had been there for many years um, was kind of on his way out; he was retiring. And so, I the the way that the visit was set up was that I would I would meet with this coach who was leaving at the beginning of the two to two or three day visit, the recruiting visit, and at the end I would meet the new coach. So I walked into the office of this guy who was departing, and his pitch was. Um, hey, son, uh, again, you know, you have the opportunity to go to Harvard. And if you don't, frankly, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was like, wow, is that it? It's like, is there more, you know? And, um, and then uh, I spent the weekend and it was, it was fine. There were a couple of the things that kind of happened over the course of the weekend. And I met the, the incoming coach who happened to be now the current AD at, uh, at Dartmouth, Peter Roby and just a super guy and we had a great breakfast at the end of the visit and i thought he was gonna he was i really liked him and i at the end of the visit i basically looked at him and i said look uh peter i think you're great and i'm gonna go someplace where i think there are more people like you <laughs> 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 so uh so yeah well, darkness well, was, well. was a place i felt comfortable and and in, I knew I wanted to be, you know, someplace that was strong academically, and I wanted someplace that I thought I'd be able to do some other activities, and I also wanted that personal connection at the time of, you know, considerable turmoil in my life, frankly, um, very difficult uh, time personally, and uh, you know, and I felt connected to the campus and two people up there, so that was uh, one of the main factors in why I chose Dartmouth. So Did they have uh, freshman trips back then? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I. I um I actually went to Hanover in June, uh, really early on, and I worked construction on the new dorms. Now you know across from the gym, what we called the new dorms back in the day, and um and then somehow the the letter for the freshman trips didn't make it to me um, because I was no longer down in Virginia. And I, at the last minute I was able to get on the fishing trip <laughs> up in the grid. And uh, it was great. And I'd done a lot of hiking over the, we spent summers in New Hampshire. I'd done a lot of hiking in the, in the white mountains. So I knew, I knew the uh, the deal pretty well. And I had a wonderful time on that fishing trip.
1: It's a brilliant model that I try to replicate with you know, teams that have been oh, associated with so like, yeah. send them in the woods, do something that nobody's really comfortable with and you know, you come back in four days and you have older students, you know, Taking you through through that, and you learn how to do a silly dance and all sorts of things, and the then you kind
0: of, dog rag. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so you basketball? How was Dartmouth basketball at the
0: time? Well, the 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 quality of the basketball. We had an amazing uh, team, and you know, by the time my sophomore year, there were actually four uh, first team all Ivy players, or would be, you know, at some point in their career, first team all Ivy players on the team. We had Brian Randall. Um, just a fantastic uh, point guard out of Buffalo, New York. We had Jim Barton, who was a, a, a junior, uh, my sophomore He was a member of the class of 89, who ended up being, I think he's now the third leading scorer in Ivy League history. It's us for a long time, second leading scorer, just an amazing shooter. Um, I was a member of the class of 90, and then we had James Blackwell, who was a 91. So then there were of other just very top-notch quality guys, um, you know, players on that team. Uh, Brendan O'Sullivan and Darren MacGill and a bunch of other people. So we had some real size, and we had we had a really good team, and we had some success. You know, we, uh, if, from Dartmouth's perspective, um, came in second a couple of years, and came very close to winning the Ivy title. It came down to a one and one with a couple seconds left at Yale one year. Um, unfortunately, it was not a not a successful conversion of the one and one, um, so uh, we didn't win the title, but we were really close and had and had a good team. So you played in the and James also, right? James That's Rockwell.
1: right. Yeah, James. NBA.
0: James uh, had a, uh, a a contract with the Celtics for for a little bit. Yep. What did you study? I was, no, a, history you know, yeah, I was a history major. Yeah, I was history major and took a lot of Spanish Spanish classes. So went on LSA in Granada. That helped when you went to
1: Spain and played. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah history, what did you, was there, did you do a senior project or anything special? No, Nothing,
0: nothing specific. My favorite class was, um, or professor was uh, Jerry Danielle, who did uh, history of New England and um, some of the uh, colonial history of the United States. So I I really enjoyed those classes. Um, And that's probably, that was actually my plan in leaving Dartmouth. I, I did not intend right up until my senior spring i never thought i would play professionally and i was planning on being a teacher like my father and um so that was a different you know kind of a supr- bit of a surprise actually um with how things turned out with basketball
1: professor danielle really should just teach a teach a course on the free jacks <laughs> <laughs> <He's laughs> <amazing. laughs> yeah fantastic so you went to you, you were actually drafted uh in the mba
0: Yes. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was a kind of an interesting process. My, I, I frankly thought that my basketball career was over after our last Ivy league game. And I had an invitation to an all-star tournament. Um, Sandy, now my wife and I went on spring break down to Florida. And then I was invited to, uh, the Portsmouth tournament in Portsmouth, Virginia, just as an all-star tournament. And, uh, I thought that would sort of be the capstone of my career And I got down to this little gym. I still hold this and I walk in and there are basically, you know, all of these NBA GMs sitting around the, you know, the court, you know, Jerry West and all these folks sitting around. I realized, Oh my goodness, this is a little more than I thought. And, um, but I had no pressure. I, I didn't feel, um, I was in pretty good shape. You know, you kind of had rebounded after a long season physically. And I, Um, the folks who were invited to that tournament were sort of the top 60, 70 players minus the 10 or 15 that knew they were going to be drafted in the first round. So, you know, the mostly low first round, second round prospects and, um, and it went really well. You know, I, I I played well against the, that talent. And, you know, after that tournament, it became pretty clear that I was in the mix for being, you know, low first round second, high second round pick. And it was just completely, I have to say completely a, a paradigm shift in terms of how I thought my life was going to go, um, at that moment. And those months were really kind of exciting and, and stressful too, you know, I'm trying to make that adjustment.
1: I bet. When I was my senior spring, I decided at that stage, and you know, I had done my investment banking internships and mm-hmm. I decided I'm going to chase rugby for two years. Uh, but I got, I got a phone call during a uh, green key weekend, <laughs> my senior year, <laughs> <laughs> like Friday night of green key. they. You know, Probably had a beer in my hand or something, and you know, can you be, uh, can you be in New York in two days with first flight to Paris and play in uh, Paris Seven? I was like, oh, yep, sure. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. nothing like being drafted, but certainly, um, having to go from okay, this is going to be a different course in terms of chasing rugby for two years to suddenly being in the mix and right really quickly. So you went to the Jazz. I grew up in Salt Lake. Yeah, uh, so
0: I know. I,
1: know. You know, the I love world. Salt Lake. Yeah, and they love basketball in Utah. Love, love. Like, yeah. we played like, three, or four different leagues growing up because you'd play at the Boys and Girls Club, you'd play at the YMCA, you'd play uh, in the Mormon Church League, you'd play right. in the DC uh, League. And so you'd be playing like a different game every night, but basically the same team. Like, a yeah. fun. Uh, so, what, who who's the, was the coach? Jerry Sloan was
0: the coach. Of course.
1: Of course. Yeah.
0: Jerry was the coach. And, uh, you know, Frank Laden was still around. Scott Laden was the GM. Um, and it was, it was like graduate school, you know, graduate school, like a fire hose graduate school, one L I don't know how to describe it. I learned so much so fast. Um, was Mark Eaton still around? Yeah. Then? Mark e- Mark Eaton, um, you know, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Thurl Bailey, Blue Edwards, Mike Brown, uh, you know, Daryl Griffith, uh, it was an incredible team. and on The, up, the team was really on the up. Yeah. Because they
1: took away Adrian Dantley, right? I think soon before that, it was also right. a, a player. Yeah. Uh, right. That the team was starting to head towards its peak.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and when they brought me in, you know, I'm seven feet tall, and they had a model where, you know, going for size and Jerry's style of play, they actually had me playing small forward. And so it was a skill set that, never, yeah, yeah, running the floor for the first time ever. Um, you know, really having to learn how to play the pick and roll, how to come off screens. There's a whole new footwork, you know, and the precision, the angles shrink. You know, as you're familiar, you know, I'm sure Alex is the higher the level goes up, the angles just get tighter and tighter and tighter, right? And so the margin for error decreases. And the the precision and the skill level, you know, has to increase to be able to match that. And so, the, all these little techniques and, and I, I, you had to you had to be just right on top of it. And I've been fortunate to have a really excellent personal individual coach when I was in high school or in college who helped me with with some of that. But playing small forward was just on that team with that level of of skill. Um, was something that I really had to come up to, you know, come up to speed quickly on, and uh, it was an incredible it was experience. A physical, physical
1: era of the NBA, right? That's when the Pistons were doing pretty well.
0: Yeah, yes, that's right, that's right. It was very, very physical, um, and you know that wasn't necessarily my hadn't been my game, and I was somebody who I think was the reason that they saw me as a small forward was I could really run. You know, I had a strong defensive presence. I would really worked hard on my outside shot. You know, I look at what's happening in the NBA today and I think, man, this would have been just tailor made for somebody or, you know, I think I could have fit in better in, in the game the way it's played today than back then. You know, it was a very pa- pounding style, half court, very physical, lots of screening and Jerry Sloan's style. And he was a very physical coach, too. So um, that was also another challenge then how did you get from
1: there? Then you headed to Europe or did you go you into the Mavs? You the Mavs yeah. That?
0: So, so, you know, I, uh, it was, it was, I, I don't want to under, you know, understate the, the difficulty of it. You know, I think that it was something that that transition was quite hard. You know, I think you, uh, going out to Utah, uh, was a new place, getting set up, getting settled in. I had signed a two year guarantee contract and was released, uh, during the, the second year of that contract and actually went, into, uh, went over and spent a couple of months. Uh, my agent found me a job for a really good team in Germany, actually, which was not a league that was very well known at the time. So I spent a couple of months playing there and then uh, was invited to the tri- to uh, to training camp for the Mavericks the next season. And, you know, that's probably one of my one of my real satisfactions um, in my career was making that team, you know, really kind of, um, you know, it's kind of murder ball. They throw the ball out. There's 18 guys. The team wasn't very good at the time and they just kind of threw it out. And the, there, were, there was one spot open and we had seven or eight, you know, really high quality guys that were fighting for that job and um you know it came down to the last night of training camp where you're sitting in your hotel and if you get a call you're going home and if you don't get a call you show up to practice the next morning and i didn't get a call so so i was able to play you know through that that season um um until somebody with a guaranteed contract came back from injury um in january and then and that was after that it was sort of a back and forth kind of going to training camp in the nba the next over the next few years i went to training camp with the bulls which was fascinating Um, and, and then spending the second part of the season in Europe. Um, and there's some interesting, you know, some really interesting stories there. I had a chance, you know, once, you know, I don't know if you know my brother Crawford, who's a, who's a 93, who also, um, he went to Dartmouth, but he had played at Duke. Um, was a, was a McDonald's all American out of Washington Lee and played, uh, two or three years at Duke and transferred to Dartmouth. But he was playing at the time in, uh, in Fos-sur-Mer for the third division in in France. And, you know, I was released, after I was released from the Bulls, he had been injured. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure. He'd sprained his ankle badly. And there's a lot of pressure on those teams. You know, um, you got to have a good start of the season. And they this was a team that was trying to move up into the second division in France. And so he asked if I would just come over and fill in for him. And so that was one of my one of the really great experiences was, you know, after getting cut from the Bulls, um, they uh, I was able to go over and play for a month for, for Crawford's team and just basically put his jersey on my back and played, played four games. Um, and uh, it was it was fant- it was a great experience, you know, to, to kind of get over there and play in France. And um, so, you know, one of the nicer, nicer experiences of my career.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into kind of what ball in Europe was like. On um, when you said
0: guaranteed contract, what did that mean at the time in the NBA? Was that- so yeah, so what happened was was that I uh, even though I was the 33rd pick in the draft with the Jazz, um so the six at the time, the sixth pick in the second round, I was their only pick that year. They did not have a first round pick. And I benefited from the fact that the season prior, the thirty-third pick, um had had uh, been a player with a lot of potential, but with some, I think some personal issues and I'm blanking on the name right now, but, but he, um, he had gotten a guarantee. And so my agent was able to sort of parlay that, that situation into a guaranteed contract, a two year contract, which meant that they were going to pay you no matter what, whether you got okay. or whatever. whatever. Um, yeah. One of the things that the NBA Players Association has been able to negotiate, you know, these guaranteed contracts, something that as opposed to like the NFL PA, for example, that still doesn't have guaranteed contracts in the same way. So um, so I benefited from that for those first two years.
1: That's great. When you were at the Mavs, had um, Mark Cuban purchased them yet?
0: No, no. It was uh, it was uh, uh, not, not a Cuban team yet at that point. It was really uh, not a great team. Um, didn't, you know, did not have a great season. I played with a guy named Derek Harper, who's one of the consummate professionals and one of the all time greats who, um, who I, I learned a lot from. Um, and I did have a chance to play a little bit more with the Mavericks than I had with the, you know, with the jazz. Um, so, you know, it was, it was in a way, um, again, allowing me to put in, you know, to what I'd learned with the jazz, I was able to put into practice a little bit with the Mavericks and then kind of take that even further when I, when I moved over to Europe.
1: Right. Our, um, our, commissioner of major league rugby, uh, George George is doing a fantastic job, but yeah, he's spent like, 15, 20 years with the Mavs in the front office and really helping drive the improvements in revenue and all those, all those yeah. pieces you know, for that franchise. But he's been great for us. Yeah. So you went to Europe, and kind of in and out and then what, what is does that scene like, you know, you played in the NBA and now you head to France and a few other Germany and a few other places. Like what's that? Are, are people at Match it? Like are people at Games? Like what is the that's that whole scene? I'm so unfamiliar with it.
0: Yeah. So um, the I guess on the personal side, first the reason why it happened. You know, I had spent four or five years really trying to to stick in the NBA, and that's a very tense and kind of a stressful process where you'll go, you know, you'll do your training, you'll be invited to training camp, for example. And then um, if you don't make the team, um, you know, you're looking for jobs. And so the European teams who, who are not living up to expectations are kind of waiting for that moment when all of the, the NBA players are getting released to sort of reassess and maybe bring in a new foreigner, you know, and so you—that happened to me a bunch of times. And I was brought over sort of to help a team that might be in a little bit of a difficult situation. You have to integrate it quickly. There's really high performance pressure. The level of basketball is actually extremely high. Um, you know, it's it's different compared to the NBA, but um, high skill, right? Yeah, it's a really high level, and um, you know, you started to see. I think now you're seeing players, you know, obviously now you have, you know, 120 or so foreign players playing in the, in the NBA. I think at the time there weren't very many foreign players, but that was just because of a lack of recognition, I think on the NBA side of the potential that was over there and the, and the the level of play that was over there. And um, so at a certain point though, that the stress of kind of going back and forth between the NBA got just, it was just too much. I think I played for four teams in a, in one, you know, over a 12 month period at one point. And, um, and so my, How many? yeah, my, over 12 months. Yeah. There was like four teams, you know, that was the year that I went to France. Like it was like with the, um, uh, the bulls. And then I went to France with my, with my brother. I went back to the bulls and did some work there. And I went, and then I went to Italy. I went to a Turkish team for a weekend and then Italy for a few months and then went to Argentina. you know, like at the end of the, you know, the beginning of the next season. So it was like just a completely, uh, bonkers kind of, a. Kind of a
1: was there consistency transfer. in contracts or like how did that work? Was that like pay were you paid like game day fees if you played in the game? No, you
0: you'd sign a contract. I mean the um so like for the French team when I replaced my brother I had a four get a one month contract I went over and played for a month because I knew he was coming back. The Italian team signed me signed me halfway through the season. Um there's a couple of just fascinating stories, you know, about that year, actually I could go into the, go into them, but like um, the, the, um, the Italian team signed me for the rest of the year. So I, I had a, I had a contract through June. Um, And then um, in Argentina, the Argentinian team, the next fall, I had, uh, it looked like I was going to be invited to Portland, the Portland trailblazers camp. And that fell through at the last minute. And then, you know, the, uh, this team in Argentina made an offer and my father actually had been working at the university of Belgrano in buenos aires at the time and been doing some projects there and he was like i asked him about it he said oh yeah it'll be great going down there and argentina has a tremendous tradition in basketball i think in 2004 they won the olympic gold medal um and so it's a very very high level of uh of of play in argentina and i went down and in that case i did have a contract but the team was almost bankrupt and And I, after a few a few weeks, I still hadn't gotten my sort of signing bonus, and the the apartment was kind of sketchy. And I went into the office, you know, I asked the guys. I was like, nobody else had been paid apparently. And so I finally went into the office, and I was like, hey, look, you know, it's been great. I love being down here in Argentina. But if you guys won't be able to, you know, kind of make your commitment, then I'm just going to head back, and I'll find a job somewhere else. And so the guy was like, oh, just wait a second. And he he went into the back office, and he came out with like. Kind of a stack of hundreds. <laughs> and, he, and he's Amazing. like, Here, hundred dollar bills. And was like, Here, take this. And uh, but but don't tell any of your teammates. And um and of course I went and told all my teammates, and I was like, guys, all you have to do is tell them you're not gonna play and you know, will you'll get paid. But I think they were really concerned. Um, the rest of my Argentinian teammates were really concerned about, you know, their they didn't want to create waves and so Wait, we're in Buenos Aires. It was in Buenos Aires, yeah. Uh, what year was that? That would have been like 94, 95, I think.
1: Yeah, Argentina is obviously also very a
0: very good rugby country. Yeah, it's just an incredible country when it comes to, you know, athletics and, and um, you know, we have – you think of some of the great Argentinian, you know, obviously uh, Manu Ginobili is the the best example of a, of a fantastic player who came out of Argentina, but there's so many. Yeah, we – um 2001 2001- – Sevens
1: World Cup in Mar del Plata. That mm-hmm. was right when the currency, the Argentine dollar, is it was was pegged to the U.S. dollar. That yeah. was right when they floated, uh, and the, all the buses that you traveled in, each team had their own bus, and we obviously had an American flag on ours. We were we were not um, well received. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: When I was there, we actually the currency was the U.S. dollar. So, yeah. Okay. The dollar, okay. it was like, you, you could use the, you could use dollars. You didn't have to convert. So it was, it was really something.
1: Love. Um, yeah. I've had many great rugby experiences in Argentina. I yeah. that. I love the people. And so you went back to Europe, um, after that?
0: Yeah. So we, my wife and I kind of, after that experience got together and we were like, look, you know, we were thinking that we wanted to have children and, um, we didn't want to go through that continued chaos. Um, Sure. just the back and forth. I'd tried it for five or six years. And so I had had some experience. My brother had been playing in France and I had some experience in Germany and both of those leagues were uh, very high level, were more professional. Um, there were, you know, the contracts were more solid. And so, um, so we decided, you know, I, I decided basically to find a job in either France or Germany and the best offer that came through was from a team in Germany So we went over to Germany and then that next spring, our our daughter was was born in 1997. And then we stayed, I kind of went between France and Germany. Um, I had one season in Le Mans, France and the rest of the time in Germany for that, for the sort of the rest of my career. And our three children were all born in Germany it sounds very romantic. (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure my wife would entirely agree. Uh, It was a great, um, you know, we, we put down roots. Um, Our children, you know, grew up, essentially our oldest daughter grew up there until she was 10. And, you know, and I continued with my, um, we stayed in Germany after my career, we kind of had a, had a tough decision to make about whether we would come back to the States or not. And we ended up deciding to stay a bit longer in Germany and continue with some other, you know, some other kind of interesting sports related activities. Yeah. How did you get into advocating for athletes' rights? Was that happening throughout your career or like when did that really um no, I don't think, I don't think it was something that happened throughout. Like, although I do, I will say the, the, the root, of, there's a couple things that kind of really um, a couple stories that I think would highlight why it happened. It does go back actually to my freshman year or maybe sophomore year at Dartmouth where we were, we were getting ready for the first practice of the season, which is always a very exciting time. And everybody goes into the gym early and you're there and you know, the coaches are all, there's a high energy and you're excited for that first practice and about 10 minutes before the first practice, the uh, NCAA compliance officer came into the gym and was like, okay, guys, hey, everybody, come on over and uh, let's sit down together. And uh, I just want to hand these forms out. Uh, if you could all sign these uh, sign these forms and then we'll get practice started. And I – hadn't seen the forms in advance? No, we hadn't seen them. We just received them literally 10 minutes before practice. And and I, it was just sort of like, oh, hey, matter of course, sign these like and these were legal documents. These are not like your name, birthday, and whatever. There's a there was a lot of language in there, and it just did not feel right to me. And so I I remember saying, you know, hey, would it be all right if we had some time to read this and maybe ask questions? And I remember just being shut down. That was that for me was the first moment where like there's something something doesn't feel right here. There's something going on here that doesn't just doesn't pass the smell test for me. And I remember doing a little bit of research into sort of the whole NCAA situation then. You know, and then, you know, years later, um, I had my own sort of set of experiences with different GMs and different teams and, and understanding that, you know, when you are an individual trying to negotiate a contract against an employer that really holds all the cards, even the language and knowing the laws and setting up the contracts, that you are at a real disadvantage. And I had a whole series of experiences and saw my teammates also really suffer sometimes because there weren't sort of collective standards in place. And I saw, you know, leagues like the NBA where there was a union, just how the business was thriving for everybody. And so um, I think, I think that's what set me on the path to, you know, union organizing and advocating for athletes rights after I, after I finished playing. So
1: you've, you saw it a bit in college, in the pros, you know, there's a lot of push right now to, change the model at the college level in terms of how revenue is allocated, yeah. who has what rights, uh, what image rights, uh, what's your take on kind of the whole college bill of rights, you know, athletes, student athletes uh, being
0: compensated uh, for their time, if not also their brand? Yeah. So, so I mean, I actually look at it kind of in a global context. I think there's an arc Um, That you have to look at when it comes to the position of athletes in commercial sports, you know, and it starts, I think, with, um, uh, you know, the NCAA, where it's a very commercialized business, there's a lot of revenue that but the athletes have a position where they are not sharing in that revenue at all. And then you move to Olympic sports, where Commercial sports where they are athletes are mostly um, compensated for, you know, are able to, to do uh, sponsorships and have certain intellectual rights around their intellectual property and are able to market themselves in a certain way. But they still don't have labor rights, so they aren't able to profit from their labor or at least share in the revenue that their labor produces for the Olympics. And then you go move into professional sport where you have you know, uh, collective bargaining agreements where the revenue is shared, labor is compensated, uh, sponsors, you know, intellectual property that that, are, that is rightfully the athletes is also compensated in a way. And there's kind of an arc that, that you can trace, you know, globally. Um, my position is really simple when it comes to the NCAA is that, um, you know, athletes uh, have economic rights and, they, this whole rhetoric around, they should be treated like every other student and every other student has a whole set of economic rights that, that, um, that athletes don't have. And I think we have to, it's going to be really interesting, you know, to the purpose of the NCA at the end of the day is in fact, to just keep that cap on, uh, you know, on, uh, athletes compensation. They just do not want to share the revenue with athletes. And I don't think that that's a, you know, a, uh, a goal that's consistent with the rhetoric that that's put out there. And I think that it's not a zero sum game. You know, I think in the end what we've learned from Marvin Miller with uh, baseball, who was the head of the major league baseball players association who broke down the reserve clause uh, to all whole series of other experience experiences with athletes organizing and sort of sharing in, uh, in the development of leagues is that actually not only do it's not a zero sum game that actually at the end of the day, businesses and sports prosper and grow when they do include their athletes and have sort of those standard setting um, aspects that are, can be laid out in a collective bargaining agreement, for example. Uh,
1: right. So everybody, everybody has a say in a way, and that's it is I understand it is incentivized. You, yep. you see that going toward leagues Like, uh, the PLL, the Premier Lacrosse League athletes, um, and I don't know how they've structured the equity. but they get a they get equity in the company itself.
0: Well, you know, I think there's lots of creative ways, you know, to do it. From what I'm seeing, I mean, I I'm I've, I've noted, you know, there's a couple ways strategies that uh, that leagues have taken to sort of structure structure things in ways that maybe would limit you know, uh, antitrust issues, you know, here in the U S um, you know, I know the way MLS is structured where, you know, the league is actually the employer rather than having each individual team be the employer. You know, that's one way to get around some of the antitrust, um, antitrust issues. You know, I think that anything that at least allows athletes to have a say and share in the economic benefits, uh, you know, of, of the sport and help it grow, I think is positive. Um, But I do think that there is a, you know, there is an element too of this sort of and you again see this globally where there's there's a trend um, and you see it at Uber, you see it everywhere where there's a trend, you know, frankly, employers and this includes sport employers would prefer that, you know, that athletes don't have rights as employees, that they are categorized in a way that is not not as employees and you know that for a while, as a sport is growing, maybe can have benefits on both sides. But at the end of the day, it really is a labor relationship that should be, um, you know, should be regulated. And I think both sides benefit when it is. It's just um, it just takes time to get there.
1: Do you see that? You know, with things like betting, is that does that play a part in all of this? Like, where where is betting in the growth of sport? Um, how does it get managed? You see that when you're in Europe, which which seems to be this uh, is naive of me to say, but a bit more culturally prevalent. Not that betting is not massive here as well, but just from a government standpoint.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I was part of a few projects around, um, you know, around uh, the positioning of betting in the in the European Union. You know, most of my experience actually is in the European Union, and um, and you know, the really interesting thing from the athlete perspective is, you know, who owns the data. Know, what's the data and who owns the data um, that is being, you know, bet upon and used, and and so the the issue, of course, for athletes who are sharing in revenue, they have an interest that you know that a sport will be able to um, you know to make more money. Frankly, so if there's another revenue stream that can come in and the athletes are sharing, then I think there's an interest in um, you know in in that happening and something being worked out so that that new revenue stream can come into the sport. And I think that it can be managed in a positive way when it comes to the overall question about betting sports betting, you know, there is a huge issue with match fixing that's out there in the world of uh, sports and soccer, you know, and and football. Um, And I think it's something that, um, that we can't underestimate and that, you know, betting does drive that. And so if you go and do some research into what's happened in, you know, in football, for example, there's some real risks and we seem to have avoided some of that in the United States. I think it also um, plays into this idea about when athletes are well compensated, they're less likely to be involved in, you know, in sort of match fixing schemes because, um, you know, you're just putting your whole livelihood at risk. Um, and when you're not well compensated, you're more susceptible to people coming and kind of corrupting the corrupting the process. But we've seen from, you know, we've seen the corrupting ex, um, influence that betting can have. And there are these crime syndicates that are out there, you know, influencing uh, influencing games. And it's it's a it's something that every league has to manage. Yeah, absolutely. But that's one of the one legs of the stool
1: over the really growing sport um, commercial. Mm-hmm. You know, You've been on some good teams. You've been on some teams that, you know, uh, perhaps wish they would have done things a bit different. You know, in your experience, what do what what good teams look like? I think
0: we uh, well, good teams are, are where uh, people understand their roles and things are clearly, you know, things are clearly defined and that people understand the goal that they're pulling towards and that that's a shared goal. And, um, you know, and they understand their roles. And I think when it comes to leadership, that's one of the most important things that, you know, that you can that you can uh, communicate to a team is. Um, that sense that we're pulling towards something together, and you know you need to be willing to help that person next to you and play your role to be able to get to a common good. And uh, those are the that's been always always the most fun that I've ever had is when I've been on, on teams like that,
1: where it's not even if the common goal is created by the whole right. Exactly. So they, going back to your, your point earlier about everybody having a say and in, in agreeing to what that is, that, and then having absolute clarity on um, how everybody plays a part and contributes. Is it, is it really, it's really... Exactly. And then, you know, you've, you've gone kind of from... You were you're at the NF, uh, NBA Players Association. Were you in New York during the time? That's where it based, right?
0: Yes, yeah. I was in New York for, for a little while. And I think, you know, leading, leading into that, that experience, you know, I had had, had the chance to go from was running a national you know, level Players Association in Germany um, to setting up a European sort of federation of player associations. We were based out of Brussels to then uh, this global federation of player unions um, that was run out of a, a player union or a, a, a services union, a global global union based out of Geneva. And, you know, that was just an incredible experience, building those organizations and working with people like Don Fair and Demoree Smith and, um, you know, the the um, we had, you know, membership included all of the rugby, you know, IRPA, all of the rugby teams, the New Zealand Rugby uh, Players Association, folks, Japanese baseball, um, you know, the the whole you know, ran the gamut. The cricketers, international cricketers, South African cricketers, and PCA. I was,
1: looking, I was looking at the numbers alone. The number of athletes you've probably helped is circa one
0: hundred fifty thousand elite athletes, which is crazy. That was, the, that was the number, you know, underneath this, um, when, we, when we counted up underneath this umbrella that was represented by those unions um, that were coming together under this sort of global umbrella. And um, it was an amazing experience putting that, putting that group together, bringing people together, um, exchange of best practices, finding these common issues that all of the athletes, whatever sports you, you played, there's so many common issues that run across all the sports, you know, around whether they were issues around anti-doping or image rights, collective bargaining, um, issues uh, related to career transition um, for athletes. Those are all things that, you know, that player associations were working hard to, you know, to, to improve for their athletes. And setting up, it's now the World Players Association, this organization, and it's run by a, 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 a Brendan Schwab who ran the Professional Footballers Association in Australia, and, it, you know, it takes part in dialogues at the International Labor Organization in Geneva, and it just, it's a it's a fantastic forum for athletes, players associations to learn from each other. We always had a saying, like, you know, everybody's coming with a problem into the room, and somewhere in that room there's going to be a solution to that problem, and my job was really just to help. Find those solutions, and it was boy, was it a lot of fun!
1: It's, it's yeah, it, it, the, the amount of, of folks you've, you've advised and helped through that whole process is is pretty outstanding. So, you then from from the uh, NBA Players Association in the city, how did you end up kind of coming back to
0: the alma mater and <laughs> Well, being the director of for life? Yeah, so, so, you know, I had a very difficult experience, actually, at the NBA Players Association, and I think this is telling um, for anybody. There was a, a career trajectory that went, you know, very quickly, you know, into leadership and um, with building upon each experience in building players associations. And it sort of the pinnacle, at least as I saw it, was at the NBA Players Association. And so I came, brought the family back from Geneva, uh, moved back to Milton, into New York, and it just was not um, – it was not a good experience, uh, working, working there. It wasn't what I expected and my background, wasn't actually, you know, applying in the way that I thought it might into for that organization. So, so, um, I left after about six months and after think you know, sort of thinking that it would be the perfect kind of culmination of, um, a place that I could stay for many years and continue to drive issues, uh, globally. And, um, it just, that just wasn't, just didn't work out. And so, um, so I went into a, um, Created my own personal consulting firm where I went back to to helping, working on projects for player associations around the world, and um, and one of the main topics that kept emerging was this issue of career transition, um, and so I did, did quite a bit of work on that issue. And um, sometime in 2018, a headhunter reached out to me, um, looking, you know, who was they were looking to hire at Dartmouth, and um, and this issue of career, you know, came up. And, you know, what my my own experience at Dartmouth had been, you know, I remember when I finished my career, one of the places that I reached out to for assistance was uh, was the career uh, services office at Dartmouth. And at the time, it said, look, you know, you're an alum and we help students. We don't really have programs for alumni. So there's not much we can do for you. And, you know, Alex, as you know, for any athlete, when you're I finished my professional career when I was 35 and it's like falling off a cliff. You know, you're just looking to what's coming next. And you have so many issues to deal with. Emotionally and and um and physically and so um, I that kind of stuck in the back of my head that Dartmouth had this sort of institutional gap and so I saw this job as an opportunity to apply all that I had learned in these areas around career transition and uh, bring it to Dartmouth and help build some programming for alumni and you know it's it's interesting I kind of see some parallels between professional athletes and if you will, Ivy league graduates, which sounds kind of, you know, interesting, but you know, nobody, nobody wants to hear a professional athlete complain, right. You know, it's like, they think yeah. you had it made. and like, Oh, you played sports. Like it's very difficult to be vulnerable when you're in a tough spot. If you were a professional athlete, because people just think you had it made. And it's very similar for, for, you know, an Ivy league grad or somebody who went to Dartmouth is that they're you know, you go back to your hometown and people are like, Oh my goodness. There's just tons of pressure to succeed and people are like, "Hey, you went to Dartmouth. What are you complaining about? You got it made." And actually, the reality is is that you know people face a lot of the same issues that everybody else does. And there are certain segments of our alumni population that that really do struggle. And um, especially now during this pandemic, it's been there's you know there's been some real challenges faced by our um, alumni alumni body. And so I felt like that didn't really tr- save the world. yet. Yeah. Like, what's yeah. your problem? I could really, you know, build something and, uh, and have a positive impact on Dartmouth, which is such a wonderful place. And so what if I had to describe my job, you know, it's basically I, we, I came in and we're looking to create frameworks and programming where alumni can help each other. And, um, and so, you know, whether that's around finding jobs, uh, mentorship, um, career support elements, really applying some of the things that I've learned from best practice in some of the players' associations and bringing that to bear uh, to Dartmouth, and it's it's such a great place to be.
1: Walter, what I love about your narrative is just that at all these stages you've been um, helping others and advocating for others. Where did that? Where does that come from? <laughs> you know, exactly. you do a lot of things. Um, and I, and I just love it at each stage of, you've, you've, that's, you've kind of been drawn back to that or doing that. Yeah,
0: I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, you know, I did have some good role models, uh, with my, with my father, but also my uncle, who was the minister of old South church here in Boston Jim Crawford, who's also, uh, 58 at Dartmouth. Um, you know, there's a real ethic around public service. And I also think, um, you know, from my own, from my own standpoint, I was always very, uh, I don't. Know, I recognized, I guess, my own, um, I guess, privilege in a way. You know, I understood that there was that that I was in a pretty lucky place, and I was always felt to feel gra- grateful for you know for the things that were happening in my life. And and um, you know, I worked hard, but but you know, oftentimes um, just a sense of gratitude. And I was very aware of how other people around me were were suffering or having a difficult time or the difficulties they were facing. And the sense of injustice, I think sometimes kind of rose up in me when I saw those things and I wanted to address that things that unfairness, I didn't, I, I I didn't want, and maybe that comes back initially to that time when I was, you know, a um, a slow developer um, and was the target of, you know, some, I wouldn't, I guess it's mild bullying, if you will, but you know, I never, I, I, I always wanted to stand up for the underdog and, and help that person out. And I think that's probably the reason why I didn't go into coaching is that I never could keep kids. I always felt so bad when I didn't let people play <laughs> yeah. Yeah. coaching a yeah. few youth teams, but I always felt like standing up for the underdog. And maybe that's comes from, you know, something in my own experience as a child.
1: Yeah. You take the great word that Grateful. And just um, being grateful of, of, of the privilege Absolutely. and earn it every day and, and- Sharing on when I was coaching at Dartmouth, and, and probably one of the things that I've struggled with since, you know, here especially with rugby, it's who, really you're coaching whoever shows up. So you're finding a positive in everybody, and you're making yep. it work that way. And when you're in elite sport, much different, where right. it's much of it is about the identification and, and um, recruitment and retention and um, in, in different mindset in a lot of ways and. You can't always um, you, you struggle potentially at the elite level, you know. And as a, as a coach, if, if you're spending all your time, whoever's there, just maximizing and not actually filling the funnel, uh, which is yeah,
0: tough. You you raise a great point, Alex. And I think you know one of the keys to the future of sports in the United States is, is around coaching. You know, I I have this you know this idea, and you, you know, you use the word retention. You know, I have this 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 idea that. Um, I've had so many different coaches and some good ones and some bad ones and I, I think that you know one of the elements is that um, that power dynamic between the athlete and the coach is so important because because as you know sort of the dark arts of motivation, if you will, are very tempting you know they work. you can reach in and you can use humiliation and punishment and you know threatening somebody and you can actually get real spikes in short-term spikes in performance that can accomplish a performance, you know, a a goal, maybe winning, help you win a game or help you accomplish something, but it's also very damaging to the athlete. And so where the, where the goals of the coach and the goals of the athlete are not necessarily aligned, um, you can sort of find that, you know, I would, I would say that um, Dartmouth is a place that, you know, when we think about it academically, we want Um, uh, professors to be both great teachers and great researchers, right? We demand a high level of both. It's not just a research university. And I would say the same thing would apply at Dartmouth and generally is that you want to have coaches who can create a great culture and who understand how to use those positive tools of motivation that, that maybe take a little bit longer to develop that, that, but that don't damage the athlete in the same way and can resist those kind of the use of the dark motivational arts as I, as I call them. And, um, you know, I think it's something we need to pay attention to as a culture, because those, those dark arts can be emulated, um, and, you know, by youth sport coaches and people that don't understand exactly what they're doing. And whenever I see a coach yelling or cursing or um, any of that, then I think you got you off track. You actually have a much more powerful um, source of motivation that you're not tapping into that you obviously don't understand. And I think there's a lot of training that could be done to help.
1: Absolutely. And the purpose as a coach there is to be a gardener and help those plants yeah. really flourish. And sometimes it takes a bit more water and yep. a bit more sun, but it doesn't take destroying the plant so it doesn't grow back. Yep. I think you know, I went to the national team level how to coach who pulled me aside and it was, you know, you really got to, you got to grab, you um, was an opponent in a scrum. Uh, you got to grab the opponent's um, fat on their side of their body and you got to twist it and pinch it and that you're going to get the result you want. I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's no, I'm, sorry, I'm not right. doing that. And it's like, okay, now you have to question the coach and you're at that level and that person is picking, you know, whether
0: you're playing yeah. or not. So. Um, That's a great example, Alex. That's a great example about what I'm talking about. And there's a whole series of ethics and, and uh, moral, you know, questions involved in there. And, um, and it's, uh, and it plays back to, you know, the motivations and the, um, you know, why, why we do sports. And again, I come back to that separation between elite sport and sort of grassroots sport and the demands that we place on people to win and how far you're willing to go to win. And we have to be careful, there and um, I think I think you can win in a positive way. I think and I think we need to as much as we can find those examples of coaches that are that are coaching teams. You know, create a balanced a balance between the power of the athlete, the power of the coach, and the management, so that you know. I have to say, very rarely in the NBA, if a coach starts yelling and mistreating players, they're gone pretty quick because the balance of power is very even. And in college and some of the youth sports, it's not the same. And um, so I, I think there's an element there that, that could also help is, is really Absolutely. the position of the athlete. And that's what I've appreciated about
1: rugby pedagogically for the last 20 yeah. plus years, especially coming out of New Zealand um, primarily, is where the coach is not a, it's not a hierarchy. The coach is kind of next to the player and collectively, um, you know, they're really moving things forward and they all have a role, but no role is more important than the other. And that was certainly my experience at Dartmouth. You know, it was very much player driven. You had coaching was more mentorship. And like, like I said, like being a gardener as opposed to, you know, top down engineering, um, which which is um, certainly made my experience much better. And I'm thankful that those are the experiences I had. And hopefully we can continue to pass that on and, and um, help other sports
0: that way. Yeah. You, you just pointed to another great example, that New Zealand rugby culture. Um one of the great, there's such a well of experience and positivity, and uh, there with you know I when I first met Rob Nicole from the uh, New Zealand Rugby Players Association and recognized the work that he had been doing there um, with his with his players and some of the things that because of that culture and community that they were able to build with their league and with their teams. There's such so many great examples of good practice there in that, in that rugby culture that we tried to, we we would put Rob on a pedestal and say, Rob, please tell the rest of us, baseball, basketball, football, whatever, please tell us some of this, this magic, you know, stuff that you're doing down there to explain to us how we can improve our, you know, our sports and other sports around the world can improve. And I, I have noticed that in the rugby culture, there's a lot for other sports to learn from. And, um, and so, you know, anytime that can be shared, I think it, it should be. Right, you know, um, you know, it's it,
1: it, it absolutely starts with coaching and coaching education. But you know, we had Tiger Shaw on uh, a full contact CEO, and you know, it, it, Tiger's point was a lot of the best steers what they learn how to do fairly young is they learn how to manage up, uh, for lack of a better term, but they learn how to manage their coaches so the, co- so, so the coaches know how to coach them. Mm. And I think that's a really good key. So, so the education. Uh, To your point is not just for, you know, helping coaches learn um, how to do things more positively where it's more holistic, but also that uh, the players are are, are learning to be able to advocate and say, no, that this is not making me a healthier person. Um, We need to do something different here, coach.
0: And I think that's a really, really important piece. So, so, Alex, one of the key things I would say, too, from my own experience as an athlete, developing an athlete, is that sense of that self-awareness that you have to develop and and, and a cool self-awareness about knowing who you are physically, who you are mentally. And, um, you know, I remember going through a process my sophomore – actually, it was my sophomore summer at Dartmouth where I had this individual coach, a guy named Robert Fox from New York City, who was just one of the most amazing, you know, uh, mentors – and he, he helped me to, he kind of took me into the gym he's like, okay, Walter, what, what, who are you? What can you do? You know, and I, when I and he gave me a definition of what that meant, you know, what is it that you are, are good at that you can do, you know, what shot can you make nine out of 10 times? What are the parts of your game that you can build everything else around and focus around and understanding who I was as a player and as a person, you know, and I was able to select two or three things that I focused my game around. And um, and I think that was that was a key, and that that's self awareness that you can build through sports. Um, you know, the best athletes, the best players, you know, know who they themselves are in a in a very brutal kind of a way. Because if you do things you can't do, you're not going to be on the court very long, you know. So uh, so I think that's a that's a key element to self development. Very too. wise point. You know, yes. Yeah,
1: Having a coach who can help you be world class in those yeah. things. Yeah, uh, I could spend hours talking about this. So, a couple quick, rapid-fire questions. Sure. If you could, if you could redo your life, uh, what is the biggest thing you would change?
0: Well, you know, I'd love to try life without basketball. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see what it would have been like without having basketball as an influence, and um, I think it would have been really interesting. Um, without, without this, without support, um, and uh, that's one of the things I'd love to just have. Love to
1: talk about that is like if rugby wasn't hadn't been in my life, and my argument is always like things would kind of I think be similar. You know, I think I probably would have responded to my world fairly similarly if it wasn't rugby. Then you know, what's the other widget? You know, obviously I love rugby and, and everything else, but yeah, I mean that would be a, it's a, it's fascinating. Great yeah. answer. Uh, speaking of basketball, who in basketball did you played with uh, could fight a grizzly without any weapons?
0: <laughs> well, I could think of three names right off the bat, maybe four. So Mark Eaton, Carl Malone, right. uh, Jerry Sloan. I'd put him up against a grizzly any day. And yeah. Another yeah. guy uh, on the Jazz as well, a guy named Mike Brown, who who was basically built just like a grizzly. Uh, and you may remember all of those guys, uh, Alex. Yeah grown up right and uh you can vouch for it Put any one of those guys against a grizzly and uh i think they've got a good chance i think stockton would have been pretty savvy around the grizzly too. <laughs> um
1: a book you've read lately uh that you've liked
0: i have one that just sits on my desk um that is uh, uh kind of a, at least for my work and the way that i approach a lot of things um, which is a whole different ball game by marvin miller um, and he was the uh, one of the, f- the first um, executive directors of the Major League Baseball Players Association. And he really brought baseball into the modern era. Um, and and he's a model, I think, for many player association leaders. Um, and, he, and there's just so much wisdom in the book uh, about sports and his experience. He has kind of an axe to grind, but uh, but there's just so much wisdom in the book. Um, so it's one that I just keep right on my desk all the time whole different ball game by Marvin Miller. look forward to reading it. Yep. And um, last question
1: we ask everybody, if you were running the Free Jacks day-to-day, to day, day to day, what would you focus on?
0: Well, so the most important thing when you're running, um, yeah, I think we just talked about it, is creating that culture um, where uh, players feel, feel supported, where they can at times fail, and where they can, you know, continue to develop. And I think it's also very important to understand that it's not a zero-sum relationship with, with the players. I think that dialogue with players and, um, and creating a positive culture and having them feel like they're also, you know, part of building the business and building, this, um, this what is going to be, I think, has huge potential in the United States and obviously is successful around the world, which is the sport of rugby. And um, so I think I think um, it's a, it's a, at a very, very interesting point in time, especially in the United States sports, as we see the concerns grow around uh, football, American football, that there are a lot of parents who are going to look look at the landscape and say, um, you know, do I want my son playing American football? No, but rugby is certainly an option. Um, and it's, um, so I would, I would say, you know, there's a whole combination of, of things there and what I just said, but I think, you know, building that culture and understanding the potential and opportunity that's out there for the sport and also the partnership between the athletes and management, how you can make that happen. Not a zero
1: sum relationship. Great quote. that We'll uh, certainly take out of this podcast. Felschgen. The amazing boots that they are, the official Chukka, the Free Jacks. Just as a reminder, we're going to give a pair to Walter. Got to make sure that we got the right size of our amazing Heritage Felschkin Free Jacks boots. Thanks to Felschkin USA. Thanks so much, Walter, for joining Full Context the other day. It was a very rich uh, conversation. Um, a lot for uh, certainly me to continue, continue to digest. So good to catch up again. Thanks for joining us today. My
0: pleasure, Alec. Anytime. And I look forward to seeing you in Hanover. Free Jacks fans, check us out. Walter, thank you. Thanks, Alex.